You're listening to the Prince College Podcast, a ministry of Prince Avenue Baptist Church, where our goal is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Thank you again for being here Wednesdays at Bogart. Hey, one of the things that you should know about me is that I love to read. And one of my favorite authors of all time is a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. I'm imagining that many of you in the room know who C.S. Lewis is, right? Like he's very popular for his works known as the Chronicles of Narnia, which if you do not know, I don't know how you don't know, they are children's books that are meant to serve as allegories for the Christian life, right? He's also really well known for his book called Mere Christianity, in which he talks about the basic beliefs of what Christians believe or what he calls basic. If you've ever read that book, it's actually like super intense and kind of hard to read. But another thing that C.S. another book that C.S. Lewis has written that is, I just think is incredibly fascinating, is a book that's called The Screwtape Letters. Raise your, have you ever heard of The Screwtape Letters? Anybody ever heard of this before? Okay, if you don't know what The Screwtape Letters is, it's fine. The premise of this book, it's a, it's a fictional book, but the premise of this book is, is interesting. The whole premise of the book is that there's this older, wiser demon, yes, I said demon, whose name is Screwtape, who is writing letters to this younger, lesser experienced demon named Wormwood, which just sounds like a demonic name, right? And he's writing letters to this lesser demon, teaching him how to best take advantage of humanity, how to distract them and how to keep them from connecting most deeply to God. And it may sound weird to you to like think about an older demon writing letters to a younger demon. And it is kind of a weird, strange book. And you're like, how did someone like concoct this in their mind? But it's also incredibly insightful on behalf of C.S. Lewis. And it's really helpful for us as we read through something like that to think about the ways that the enemy tries to attack us. And one of the ways that's highlighted in that book is C.S. Lewis talks about the tactic of noise. The tactic of noise. As a matter of fact, in one of the letters in which Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, he refers to the enemy's realm, like Satan's realm, as a kingdom of noise. And there's this one line in this letter that I just found fascinating. Again, think about, this is an older demon writing to a younger demon, and he says this, music and silence, how I detest them both. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We've already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and the silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. That's haunting. That's eerie to think about what Lewis is hinting at in writing that metaphor, like make-believe letter from a demon to another demon. He's hinting at the fact that one of the enemy's primary tactics in keeping us from connecting most to God is to distract us with all kinds of noise. Noise from the culture about what the world says that we should believe and value and prize. Noise from distraction, the things that pull at our attention and keep us focused on lesser things. Noise from our own thoughts and the lies that we believe about ourselves, about others, and about God. Noise. And what 
C.S. Lewis shows us in this remarkably creative work called The Screwtape Letters is that the enemy does not need to turn you into some morally corrupt, despicable human being to, dist- to keep you from connecting most deeply to God. He just has to distract you. He just has to keep you moving, and he has to distract you with the kingdom of noise, drowning out the things of God with the kingdom of noise. And as I like, came across that this week and was reminded of that, it blew my mind because, I don't know if you know this, but C.S. Lewis wrote that in 1941. In 1941. I want you to let that sink in. 81 years ago, he wrote about the distractions of noise and how noise keeps us from connecting most deeply to God. And I just can't help but think that if he thought that then, what would he think about the world that we live in today? that our world has gotten increasingly more noisy, more distraction, more speed, less focus, less depth, and there's this kingdom of noise. And what I would tell you is that noise is one of the greatest enemies to our spiritual life. It's one of the greatest enemies to you experiencing true rest for your soul. We need to talk about that. I did a lot of just studying this week and reading different authors that talk about this. And I came across this quote that I thought was really profound. It's a little bit long, but I want you to hear this. This guy said this. He says, we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. That's a really powerful phrase. He said, it's not that we have anything against God, depth, or spirit. We would like these It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these even show up on our radar screens. Listen to this. We are far more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life that they produce in us than we are the church. He ends this paragraph by saying this. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Is that not perfect? Is that not just, do you not just feel that tonight? Like, I feel that. I feel like that's just like, he's like adding me in that paragraph. Like, I feel that on such a deep level, pathological business. Distraction, restlessness, major blocks to our spiritual life. We're distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion, just following this kingdom of noise. There's a pastor that I follow really closely, whose name is John Mark Comer. Perhaps some of you have heard of him. And he, he wrote a book that's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I just got to confess that he has shaped so much of my thinking on what it means to just practice these disciplines and, and to rest. So much of this series is influenced by things that I have learned from him. And in this book, he has this incredible line about the consequences of noise. And he says that the noise of the modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God. And it drowns out the one input we most need. This is a problem in our day. Can we just acknowledge tonight that we have this problem of the kingdom of no Much of what is keeping us from experiencing rest, much of what is keeping us from experiencing more of God and becoming the men and women that God has called us to be is the power and the influence of the kingdom of noise. We're distracted people who are not connecting most deeply to God. And so the question that I want to pose to you tonight, the question that I think we need to tackle together tonight is really simple, is what do we do about it? 
Like if this is the world that we're living in, if this is the problem that we face, what do we do about it? How can we, as another one of my favorite authors says, dissent from the kingdom of noise? How can we fight back? And I want to remind you, those of you who were here with us last week, that I read you a passage of scripture from Jeremiah chapter 6. And it's a promise from God. And he says this, that stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And so we must rally around this tonight and ask, is there some ancient path? Is there some way from the life of Jesus that we can walk in that will help us fight back against the kingdom of noise and experience rest for our souls? And the answer to those questions is yes, there absolutely is. The answer lies in what the New Testament calls the eremos, the eremos. Eremos is a word in the original Greek language that comes up a lot in the New Testament. Hopefully you know that the Bible wasn't written in English. Most of it in the New Testament was written in Greek. And eremos is a word that comes up a lot in the New Testament, specifically in the first four books of the New Testament called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As you follow the life of Jesus, eremos comes up a lot. Now, I want to pause here and say this. If you're new here, we don't typically make a habit of doing like deep, in-depth word studies on like one word in the original language. It's not normal of a habit of, of ours, but we're absolutely going to do that tonight, okay? We're going to dive deep into this one word because I believe if we begin to get more of an understanding of what this word means and what we see of Jesus and how he interacts with the Eremos, it will give us some principles and some practices that will help us to experience that rest that we all crave. So buckle up. Is everybody ready to do an in-depth word study on this ancient Greek word? No answer at all. That was incredible. Okay, we're just going to go for it. I promise it's going to be more fun than it sounds. Okay, so we're talking about this Greek word, eremos. And so the first question that you got to ask is, what does this even mean? Like, how is it translated? This word is translated a lot of different ways in the New Testament, depending upon which translation you have. I believe Stephen has a slide with all the different, here we go, all the different translations of the word eremos. You got the word desert. Deserted place, desolate place, solitary place, lonely place, quiet place, wilderness. This word is translated in a variety of different ways, and it tends to come up a lot in the life of Jesus, right? And we see him often withdraw to the Eremos. And one of the things that I don't like about any of these definitions and any of these ways that they're translated is a lot of them have negative connotations, right? Like the desolate place. Like I'm going to be reading a lot from the ESV. That's how the ESV translates it a lot. That just sounds, that sounds depressing. The desolate place, the lonely place, all those sound negative. So I have a, a different definition that I want us to work from tonight. It's going to be on the screens as well. That you can think of the Eremos as a place to be alone in the quiet with God. This is how we see Jesus interact with the Eremos. It was very simple for Jesus that the Eremos was an intentional time and space in which he could steal away and be alone with the Father in the quiet. This was a normal practice, a normal habit in the life of Jesus. I want to look at some examples with you. If you have your Bible, join me in the Gospel of Matthew. Flip to Matthew really quickly. If you... 
very first book of the New Testament, in Matthew, we see Jesus begin his life in ministry. And in Matthew chapter 3, I want you to go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at those for a little bit together. In Matthew chapter 3, there's this really cool story about Jesus' baptism moment that Jesus goes down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And he comes to John the Baptist and he's asked to be baptized. And John the Baptist like gets all weird. He's like, no, like, I'm not worthy. You should be baptizing me. It's like John the Baptist is like kind of trying to Jesus juke Jesus in this moment, trying to like act all like humble. And so Jesus is like, no, this is the way that it needs to be for this moment. And so we see John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus comes up from the water, the text tells us that the heavens open and the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove and that there's an audible voice from heaven and the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Like this is, this is a way to come onto the scene in ministry, right? Like, like Jesus has this epic moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Give me a second. Jesus has this epic moment in which the audible voice from God comes down from heaven. He receives the acceptance, the love of his father in this moment. And then something strange happens. In Matthew chapter 4, if you have your Bible, read that first verse with me. Right after this big monumental baptism moment, it says this, that then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that word wilderness, you may have guessed, is the word eremos in the Greek. And I find this just kind of interesting because you would think that after this big, huge baptism moment, heaven's open voice of God, that maybe Jesus would do something miraculous and incredible. But instead, what you see is that he's led into the wilderness, led into the eremos. And as we read through Matthew chapter 4, we see that he's actually tempted by the enemy himself, by the devil Himself. This text tells us that Jesus fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. He's had no food. He's hungry. And the enemy then comes to him and begins to tempt him. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I've, I've read this story a fair amount of times. I've heard it taught a lot. And every time that I've thought about this story, I've kind of thought about it from the perspective of like, Jesus is just so hungry, and the, the, the enemy's coming to him in a place of his highest vulnerability and his highest weakness, right? Like, all Jesus wants is a little piece of bread, and here comes the pesky devil trying to, like, tempt him while he's down, just like the enemy to try to, like, take cheap shots on Jesus, right, while he's weak and vulnerable. And I want to be clear, I think that there is some element of that for sure. Like, Jesus is a man, and he is experiencing the physical hunger pains and the weakness of not having food for 40 days. But one of the things that was pointed out to me this week is that he's also spent 40 days alone with his father, fasting, praying, seeking God's face, spending time with the father alone in the quiet. And because of this, we see something really interesting in this story, that while Jesus was weak physically, he was absolutely strong spiritually. He was experiencing physical weakness, but he had spiritual strength that he had just spent 40 days in the Eremos, intentional time away with the Father. 
And because of that, whenever the enemy does show his face, Jesus doesn't just like get kind of like a partial victory. No, Jesus wipes the floor with the enemy. You understand? Like this is like UGA versus Vandy, 55 to zero moment. Like the enemy scores zero points on Jesus. He tries to tempt Jesus three different times, coming to him, trying to get him to doubt his identity trying to get him to doubt his security. And every single time, Jesus stands strong on the word of God, on what God has said, on what the Father has spoken. And even whenever the enemy takes the words of God and tries to twist them, Jesus sees right through it. He's confident in what God has said. And this story, it illustrates a powerful thing for us. Again, to borrow language from John Mark Comer, it shows us this. Matthew 4 shows us that the Eremos is not a place of weakness, but a place of strength. The Eremos is not a place of weakness, but a place of strength. So much so that after this initial moment in the wilderness or in the Eremos, we see throughout the life of Jesus that he continues to return to the Eremos time And time, again, let me show you another example. In Mark chapter 1, so flip over to Mark if you got your Bible. Mark, what we know about the book of Mark is that it moves incredibly quickly. It's just like a very, like a highlight reel of Jesus' life almost, just moving really, really fast from story to story. And Mark chapter 1 starts off the same way. It starts off with a bang. And after Jesus' temptation moment, we see in Mark 1, Jesus begin his ministry by preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's calling people to repent. We see him call his disciples to join him. We see him cleanse a man who has an an impure spirit. And then we see him go to the home of two of his disciples and their mother is sick and he heals her. And that turns into this entire town surrounding this house, bringing with them all of their sick. And he spends late into the evening healing the sick and teaching them the things of God. This is a great way to start ministry. This is a great and productive day in the ministry of Jesus. You could say that his analytics are trending upward, right? Public opinion at an all-time High. He'd done so much good for this community. And perhaps after a really busy day like that, you'd expect that maybe the next day he'd just chill a little bit, right? Like sleep in, maybe have some brunch with his boys, you know, like just like do, do something and just kind of ease into the day, right? Brunch with the boys is a real thing. All right, just get over it, okay? You'd expect him to kind of ease into the day a little bit. But you don't, you don't see that at all. What you see in Mark 1, verse 35, is this. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. After this long day of ministry, up late into the evening, healing, teaching, blessing, encouraging, he wakes up early the next day before the sunrise to withdraw again to the Eremos. What we see is that during this time, he's out away and he's praying and the people actually begin to search for him and they find him. And Simon says, everyone is looking for you. And then he says to them, let us go to the next town that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So he gets up early the next morning. 
He steals away, and he spends time in the Eremos with his father, and whenever the people come looking for him, remember, these are people that love him in this moment. Jesus doesn't have, there are no enemies of Jesus in this story. They just want him to see him do more things. I imagine that it would have been very easy for Jesus to stay in that town for at least a little bit longer, right? At this point, they like him. But he says, after spending time with the father, no, it's time for me to go and do what else I was called to do. That he doesn't do the easy thing, he does the important thing. He does the necessary thing. He goes to other towns and he preaches and he heals there as well. This pattern continues in the life of Jesus. No matter how busy he gets, he continues to prioritize the Eremos. Look with me in Luke chapter 5. I want to show you this one as well. Eremos is used a lot in the book of Luke. It's used nine times in Luke's gospel alone. And in Luke chapter 5, we see Jesus' popularity had continued to rise. People are wanting to know more. They're wanting to come and hear Jesus' teaching. They're wanting to come experience him do the miraculous. But even as his popularity continues to rise, he continues to prioritize the Eremos. And in Luke 5, verses 15 and 16, it says this. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gather to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. People are coming from all over. And look at verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. No matter how busy, no matter the public demand, no matter the demands upon his time, Jesus would often withdraw to the desolate place to the Eremos, to pray and to be alone with God. And I'm showing you these things to show you that this is obviously a normal habit in the life of Jesus. He prioritizes the Eremos. And the reason that I want you to see that is that this is a pattern in the life of our Savior, and these patterns matter. And I want to point it out because I'd be willing to bet that if you're honest with yourself, that for many of us, that's not much of a normal habit at all, right? That whenever we get busy, whenever there are a lot of demands on our time, and there are a lot of things that we need to accomplish and get done in any given day, that moments in the quiet to be alone with just us and God are often one of the first things to go in our schedules, right? And we can be honest about that in this room. I've experienced that in my life, I imagine many of you in the room, if you're walking with Jesus, you've experienced that in your life. And I want you to hear me really clearly here. I'm not saying that to shame you at all. I'm saying that to point out to you that Jesus is inviting you into something better. He's inviting you into something better. He wants you to experience something better. I want you to look with me at one more story in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus extends this invitation to his followers. This is the same story that Garrett read for us a moment ago. What we see in the gospel of Mark is that Jesus, he equips his disciples, and then he sends them out to join in his work. This has always been the heart of Jesus, that he brings people to himself, and then he sends them out to join in his work. Jesus is not just about gathering a larger crowd around himself. He wants to send people out and to join in his work all across the world. That's a sermon for a different time, but that's what happens in Mark. And he sends these people out, and then they return in Mark chapter 6. 
and they return and they begin to tell Jesus about everything that they've experienced, about everything that they've seen God do, about everything that they taught to these people, about all of their experiences. They're telling Jesus these things, and I find his response really interesting. Let's read this one more time together, that the apostles returned to Jesus. This is Mark 6, verses 30 and 30 through 32. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, listen to this response, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. What I find interesting about this is that Jesus doesn't seem to be too impressed with their stories, with their successes, with the busyness and the pace of their life. Instead, he looks upon them and he realizes they've been going so hard for so long. They've had no leisure, no time even to take a break and eat. He sees how weary they are and he has compassion upon them. And he invites them to join him in one of his favorite places, in the Eremos, to rest with him. It's fascinating to me in the life of Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus knew, that this is what they desperately needed. That they didn't need more work and more effort. They didn't need more affirmation and more compliments. They didn't just need to numb out with distractions and veg out. They didn't need just a nice meal or a nice night out on a town or a big old glass of wine to drown out the cares of the day. No, what they needed was the Eremos. They needed intentional time away in the quiet to be alone with the Lord. Jesus knew that this is where they were going to experience rest. What we see is that Jesus models this in his own life, and then he invites others into it as well. He models and he invites. He models and he invites that he steals away to be alone with the Lord, and he invites others to do so as well. This is what I want you to see. That throughout church history, followers of Jesus have adopted this very practice. That they've learned how to follow the example of Jesus. They've learned how to accept the invitation into the Eremos. And this practice, this ancient path from the way of Jesus has come to be known as the discipline of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude are the essential elements that make up the Eremos. So my main point tonight is really, really simple. It's going to be behind me on the screens that if you want to experience rest, you must establish the rhythm of silence and solitude. If you want to experience rest, you must establish the rhythm of silence and solitude. This is the place where you are going to experience more of God. You're going to hear his voice. You're going to experience his presence. You're going to experience the rest that he promises you. But the reality is, and the reason that I wanted to talk about this tonight, is that the reality is for most of us in the room, we often settle for lesser fake versions of the Eremos. Things that promise rest but never deliver. And so we'll spend hours binge-watching Netflix or just watch, letting TV just like wash over us like waves, just convinced that this is rest. But if you're honest, at the end of that Netflix session, you don't feel any better than you did before. Oftentimes you feel worse. 
or we hop on our phone and we open apps like TikTok or Instagram that are literally designed to capture your attention and keep it for as long as possible. And we convince ourselves that it's just us taking a mental break, but in reality, it's not resting our mind at all. It's making us more tired. It's definitely not refreshing our souls. At most, it's distracting us. At worst, it's bringing up all kinds of feelings of jealousy, anxiety, lust, fear, whatever. So we, we do things like that, or we, we go for escapist behaviors and things like alcohol or pornography, just trying to drown out these negative feelings inside, thinking that we can feel good for a moment, but in reality, all it does is stir up more negativity, more stress, more anxiety, and more shame. All of these behaviors promise rest, but none of them deliver. They're counterfeit at best. They masquerade as restful, but they are far from the Aramis. They're far from what you need. And if you want to experience true rest, you must follow in Jesus' example, and you must accept his invitation. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what God wants for you. You have a God in heaven who loves you who desires relationship with you, who wants you to experience rest, acceptance, forgiveness, and freedom, and to dwell in his presence, experiencing his loving kindness, his peace, and his faithfulness for all eternity. That's what God wants for you. So much so that he sent his son to live, die, and rise again, not so that you could prove that you are worthy, but so that you could rest in his finished work, knowing that he has accomplished everything for you on the cross of Calvary so that you could find rest for your souls in the presence of the one who made you. That's the gospel. This almighty one knows your name and he invites you to join him. He has paved the way. He has made this possible, but you do have to walk in it. You do have to take the step. You do have to begin to pursue him. And one of the ways that you do that and you can experience more of him and you can experience the rest that your soul craves is that you can begin to cultivate the discipline of silence and solitude in your life. It will be beneficial for you. It will be helpful for you. And I told you guys whenever we started this last week that I wanted this series to be intensely practical for you. I didn't want to get up here and talk about theoretically how we experience rest. I want to give you some tangible things that you can do tomorrow that will help you experience rest. So give me a couple of minutes here. I want to give you some practicals. If you want to begin to cultivate this discipline in your life, there are three things that you need to think about. If you've spent any time with me at all, chances are you've heard me talk about these three things. If you want to cultivate any spiritual discipline, but in this context, the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude, you need three things. Those three things are a time, a place, and a plan. You're smiling at me because you know we've talked about it. Time, place, plan. Right? You need a time, a place, and a plan. Meaning this. Think about this with me. Okay. You need to think about your day. You need to think about your schedule. You need to think about the things that you must do in any given day, classes that you have to go to, meetings that you have to be at, times of work that you have to be at. You need to think about your schedule and the demands of your time. And whenever you look at your schedule for any given day, you need to find a time and identify a specific time in which you're going to spend with the Lord. Put it on your calendar. Be proactive about this. So much of our problems with this is that we try to be reactive and we try to like just fit in time with God whenever it fits. Like, don't do that. Be proactive about it. Find a time that works for you. Put it on your schedule and as much as humanly possible, commit to it. For me, 
my time every day is first thing in the morning. It's what works best for my schedule. My day is filled with a lot of meetings. It's a lot of things I have to do with, for work, a lot of school assignments because I'm in seminary right now. My evenings, Jillian and I have a lot of commitments in the evenings. So for me, first thing in the morning is what works for me. That's my time. And so I wake up early enough to make sure that I have time to spend with the Lord before going to do anything else. You need to establish a time and commit to it. Really commit to it. Just like if you were to come to me and you were to tell me that you wanted to meet me for coffee one day and we found a time that worked for us, I would do everything humanly possible to honor that time commitment. I'm telling you to have that kind of mentality with your relationship with the Lord. It doesn't, it's not, I'm not saying this in like an illegalistic way at all. I'm just saying this is going to help you to schedule a time and as much as humanly possible, stick to it. You need a time. And then from there, you need to think about a place that this is going to work, okay? This is really important because you've got to remember the definition of Eremos is a place to be alone and in the quiet with God. So alone and in the quiet are the important clarifiers that should determine the place in which you practice this. Does that make sense? So you've got to think about where can I be alone? Where can I be in the quiet? And I want to clarify here, by quiet, I don't mean just the absence of noise. I mean the absence of distraction. Distraction is in and of itself noise, and it keeps you from experiencing more of God. So you've got to think about where can I be alone and where can I be undistracted? Meaning you've got to be real about the things that tend to distract you. And you've got to pick a place that you're not going to have those distractions. So for some of you, it might be a great idea after your first class to go sit somewhere on a bench outside and just open your Bible and to pray. That might work great for you. For others of you, that might be a terrible idea because as people are walking by, you're like checking out their shoes and you're looking at the squirrel and you're looking at the dog and you're looking at the birds in the sky. Like you may be so incredibly distracted. Be honest with yourself. Think about a place. We don't have time to talk about all of the distractions that you need to get rid of, but I will say this. This is really important. This is one thing that I would beg you to think about. Try to find, not try, do. Find a place and a time that you can spend time with God without your phone. Okay? Can I just say that? Like, I'm not trying to be the anti-technology guy at all. Like, I love technology and all the things that it affords us, right? But it has made us an incredibly distracted people. Listen to a couple of these stats. I find this unbelievable. That there's a recent study that found out that the average American has over 150 screen sessions a day on their phone. That they touch their phone over 2,500 times in a day. The average American. They found out that the average American spends over 700 hours a year consuming social media. It's unbelievable. If you calculate, like, based on the average reading speed of an adult and the average length of a book in the English language, you could read over 300 books in that amount of time. It's unbelievable. The stats for TV are even more staggering or streaming services. It's not 700 hours. It's 2,700 hours that the average American spends consuming some kind of media through some kind of streaming service. And I want to point out to you that that's the average American, meaning your grandma is included in that stat. Okay, that's not taking into account generational differences. Another study found out that 77% of young adults reach for their phone whenever there's nothing else occupying their attention. 77%, and that study was from four years ago. So you got to think that that's, that's only gone up, right? And so I'm, I'm pointing all that out to say this, that one of the greatest enemies to your spiritual life might just be in your front pocket right now. And you got to think about that. Like, just get the phone out of the room. And so for me, my place 
every morning. I told you my time is first thing in the morning. My place is that I go out onto my back porch, okay? My phone, I charge it in a different room in my house. So whenever I wake up, it's not in my bedroom. It's in a different room. And I don't even go into that room until after I spend time with the Lord. I wake up and I make myself some coffee, which is the holiest of beverages, okay? And I go outside with my little pup, Palmer, and we sit on the back porch most mornings and watch the sun rise and I spend time alone with God. That's my time. That's my place. You need to find yours. And the third thing is you need a plan. You need a plan. Don't just get alone in the silence and just sit there. Like Jesus had the moment where the heavens opened up. You're probably not going to have that moment. Like you need to have a plan. If you do have that moment, you can have my job and you can tell us all about it, okay? But the reality is you need a plan. You need to think about what are you going to do during that time. You need to have a book of the Bible that you're reading through that you're planning to read through. You need to have a journal with you, journaling out things that, are, that God's bringing to mind. You need to have things that you're planning to pray about and that you're asking God for. For me, right now, I'm reading through the book of Exodus. And so in the morning, whenever I get up and I'm sitting on my back porch, the first thing that I do is I pray and I just ask that God would speak to me through his word. And I just read it. And I'm underlining anything that sticks out. I have a journal and I'm, I'm writing down any things that I find interesting, that I have questions about. If there's something that I see in like the life of Moses, for example, that I want to see in my own life, I, I write out prayers in my journal. God, help me be more like Moses in this way and not like Moses in this way. Right? Like I'm writing things out like that. I have a plan. You need one to time, place, plan. These are things that will help you begin to cultivate the discipline of silence and solitude that will help you enter into the Eremos and experience more of the rest that God has promised you. I want this for you. I cannot tell you how valuable this practice has been for me and how much closer I feel to the Lord and how much more rest I experience in my soul as a result of the normal habit of stealing away, spending time with him. There's a reason we see Jesus do this so often throughout the Gospels. He models it for us for a reason. It matters. There's another author that I was reading about this week. His name is uh, Henry Nouwen. He wrote a little book on silence and solitude, and he says this, that we do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and to listen to him. That if you're not setting aside time to be with God on your own, that you're not taking the spiritual life seriously. And I could not agree more. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, if you want to become the man or the woman that he has called you to be, if you want to experience the rest that he promises, the rest that comes from knowing him, then you must follow this practice of Jesus. You must set aside time to be alone with him in the quiet. You will not grow in intimacy with him if you do not. Like, think about it like this. This... Next week, my wife and I, Jillian, are about to celebrate three years of marriage, which is exciting. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I didn't, I didn't say that for the applause, but I appreciate it. Uh, but Jillian and I's marriage would not be as strong as it is now if we only hung out in group settings. You understand that? Like, that makes logical sense to you. Right, like we would not have as deep of a connection and we would not be in as much love as we are if we only hung out in group settings. So we set aside time to spend time together. We plan date nights. We get alone. We put away the distractions. We ask each other questions. We get to know one another more deeply, right? And as a result of that, our relationship grows. The same is true of your spiritual life. Don't just settle for group interactions like this. This is really good. 
this is a real blessing. Don't neglect it, but this is not it. You also need to be cultivating time to spend time with the Lord on your own. You are living in a world that is filled with so many distractions and all kinds of noise. And if you are not careful, that noise will keep you from connecting to God and will keep you from experiencing the rest that he promises you. But there is hope. You can fight back. You can do something about it. You can experience rest in the midst of this kingdom of noise because God has provided both an example and an invitation through the life of Jesus. You can join him too in the Eremos. I want this for you. I want you to practice this because I believe that if you do, you will experience more of God, you will experience more of the rest that he promises, and you will become more like him. And that is my hope for you. My only hope for you is that you would become more like Jesus and live the way that he lived and participate in all that he is calling you to do. And you do that by first joining him in silence and solitude. Would you pray with me?